There are two minutes for rebuttal, so you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Jeremy Gutman, and I represent Appellant Cordero Pasley. On this appeal, we ask the Court to find that in applying the guideline for attempted murder, the Court below erred in two different ways. First, by finding that there was a requirement of intent to kill and intent to cause death. Second, in its determination that there was premeditation that would elevate this to murder of the first degree or an attempt to commit murder of the first degree. As to the intent question, this Court reviews for clear error, which is a deferential standard, but in this case it is not the most deferential standard because this case does not involve credibility determinations. There were no live witnesses. But the question for this Court is whether the evidence viewed in its entirety plausibly establishes that the government met its burden of proving by a preponderance that Mr. Pasley intended to cause the death of the individual involved. If the evidence merely shows, or shows at best, that it's equally likely that he had a lesser intent, such as an intent to scare or possibly injure, that would not be proved by a preponderance. On the facts here, and if you consider all of the facts, and we believe that neither the government nor the Court below addresses all of the relevant facts, the evidence here goes a long way toward showing by a preponderance that Mr. Pasley did not intend to cause death. I was going to say the bullet was lodged just a few inches from the head of the driver of the van, right? It was lodged, it ended up what appears to be behind a plate that was near the shoulder. And there's a somewhat misleading way that this has somehow been transformed, both in the government's brief and in the Court's decision, into a shot directly at the driver's head. In fact, the shot was fired into the side of the van. If you look at the photograph, I believe it's Government Exhibit 7 and several others, but the photographs make it clear that the bullet was shot at the side of the van, opposite or outside of the cargo compartment, behind the passenger compartment. So it was not a shot directly at the driver's head. And in fact... It was a fast-moving situation, right? It was a fast-moving situation. But your typical New York City rage. Well, that's basically what it is, and that's how everyone characterized it. It was a road rage incident. And that's relevant to the second point, which I'll turn to, I hope. But I did want to say that with regard to the intent finding, the reason I say the evidence comes close to proving a burden that the defense doesn't have, that the intent was not to kill, if that had been his intent, first of all, he had an opportunity to shoot directly at the head, because 
we know from the uh, statements of the driver that he was able to describe the gun inside the car. So clearly his face would have been visible uh, right in the window. But the shot wasn't through the window. It was at the, uh, at the side of the van. And the, bullet, the, the, uh, the gun had five more bullets. But Mr. Gaston fired once, clearly did not injure the driver. He could be seen through the window and continued driving. And as soon as the shot was fired, <coughs> Mr. Gaston uh, immediately left. There was no pursuit. There was no further shot. If his intent had, in fact, been to kill, he had plenty of opportunity to fulfill that purpose. The, the evidence here suggests that his purpose was accomplished when he fired the shot at the side of the van, uh, which certainly would have expressed his rage and, and sent uh, a message to, to the participants. <coughs> and the evidence really supports, if you look at all of the evidence, it supports the conclusion that that, in fact, was his intent, and it, and it doesn't reach the level where a court could reasonably uh, go the extra step of saying he, he intended to kill. And I, I want to point out one other thing uh, that I think is significant. Uh, the only other evidence was, was evidence regarding a threat that was supposedly made during the outset of this road rage incident. And, and there's a, a, a point that I didn't uh, identify clearly in my brief that I want to mention, which is that uh, the court, because there's reference to using the word kill, in the, there were conflicting testimony on that. The passenger never mentioned any threat this statement at all. And the, uh, the driver at one point said kill, used another, another expression at another point. And in footnote five which I, uh, of the, of the uh, judges, I'm sorry, footnote one of the court's decision, uh, the court specifically said it could have been either one. What the evidence shows is that there was a threat to at least seriously injure. So the court did not find that this was a threat to kill. Um, um, so, so taking all, all of those facts, there, there's just simply not enough to support an inference about what, about what was in fact going on in Mr. Cassidy's mind, his mens rea was uh, an intent to cause an individual's death. Uh, you said, uh, you started to say that there are facts the district court didn't consider. What facts did the district court not consider? The, the, uh, the district court did not consider the fact that there were five more bullets found in the gun recovered shortly after that, uh, and that the gun was operable. There was no, there was no evidence that the gun jammed or anything like that. So that's not addressed. Uh, were, were, you counsel, were you counsel in the uh, district court? I was. So you're the, you're the person who set forth the one-shot rule. Well, I... I, I, I Don't get me no, wrong. I, it I, may I be. That. I mean, my position, I'm not suggesting that under no circumstances could a single shot uh, establish... So we agree. Lincoln, Lincoln only got one, didn't he? 
No, your argument is a single shot when there are more bullets available constitutes a no intent to kill rule. I think where there's a single shot and an opportunity to continue firing, there must be something more than that to get you to a conclusion that the intent was in fact to kill. I don't think you have, if you, if there were pursuit, there were some other factors, I'm not suggesting a hard and fast rule about, you know, that there could never be a single shot that establishes the intent. But here, here I submit it doesn't. As to the finding of premeditation, that of course requires that the defendant, with a cool mind, engage in deliberation and plan, and that he in fact deliberate during that period. The court's finding here was that Mr. Hasley acted in a fit of rage and with a cool mind. It's impossible, I would submit, to find premeditation based on that finding of fact. But wait, I mean, look, you can call something a road rage incident, but where four minutes elapses between the, you know, the cutting somebody off with a car and shooting the gun into the compartment of the passenger or the front portion of the vehicle, why wouldn't that be consistent with premeditation? Well, first of all, it's less, it's not four minutes. Four minutes was the time from the initial incident to when the car is seen about a block away in Spokane traffic. So, in fact, we don't believe the incident lasted more than three minutes. The description of the incident allows no moment for calm reflection. But he dropped the passengers from his vehicle out of the car before he then resumed his chase, if that's the right word, with the van, right? Your Honor, the point is that there was no, there was not an opportunity for calm reflection during that period. During that whole time, the woman in the car is yelling, he's yelling back at her, I'm going to kill you. There's... Look, it's not sort of the assassination of Paul Castellano. It's not a lot of planning, but it's, I mean, the point is the premeditation doesn't require that kind of planning, right? It just said that you intended to do it and you, that you, it wasn't just a spontaneous moment. I don't think that's what the case law suggests. I think that, and what the court here specifically found that really undermines this finding is that we found that there was time to deliberate, but the defendant failed to deliberate. So it really turns the idea of premeditation on its head. Instead of a plan formulated with a cool mind, which I'd suggest you never had a cool mind. And the, by the way, there was also evidence that was disregarded from the defense that this particular defendant had had a traumatic brain injury and had seizures as a result and was on medication that causes emotional disturbances and would make it particularly hard for him to calm down. And the fact is that the evidence from all the, from the witnesses, he never had a moment where he calmed down. It was three minutes and he's going, people were yelling the whole time. He's going, 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 he's
or there's no moment when he stopped being agitated from the initial decision. And, and the, the finding by the court below is, although he had time to deliberate, and as the court put it, and step back from the impulsive decision he made at the outset, he failed to do it. He failed to deliberate. And failing to deliberate cannot be reconciled with the case law that talks about, you know, that defines deliberation and premeditated act following the deliberation. So... Well, you've got two minutes for rebuttal, so we'll hear from Mr. Toporowski. Am I saying that right? You did, Your Honor. Really? Okay. Toporowski, I think, basically, yeah. It's a hard one. Thank you, and may it please the court, Adam Toporowski on behalf of the United States. There was ample evidence for the district court to find by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant's actions constituted an assault with intent to commit murder. As to the defendant's intent to kill victims, the government presented evidence that the defendant threatened to kill Lester Brown. He made a gesture referencing his firearm to Brown. He made a U-turn to follow his victims. He drove his vehicle as close as possible to the victims, pulled up right alongside them. He pointed his firearm at Brown, and he fired at Brown. The government presented evidence that the bullet missed Brown's head by mere inches, and it was fired at an extremely close distance. The defendant's contrary arguments are not persuasive, and they did not persuade the district court. If the defendant, for example, merely meant to threaten Brown, wouldn't the gesturing and the threatening beforehand have been enough? Couldn't he have just shown the firearm, or fired the gun into the air, or closer to the ground? The idea that the defendant missed his victim by mere inches by chance is just not plausible. He attempted to shoot Brown in the head, and he just missed. The government also presented ample evidence for the district court to find that the defendant acted with premeditation. The defendant exhibited calculated behaviors, including dropping off the woman and the child in his car, and then following his victims and getting as close as he could to them. That was pursuit. Let me ask you, counsel. Judge Kunst, did he deploy what one might call a standard articulation of district judges, that he was aware that the guidelines were advisory, and that he was basing his decisions on the full record before him? Was there something akin to that at some point? Your Honor, at the sentencing, I believe Judge Kunst read the entire PSR in his presence, and he said that he had reviewed all the parties' briefings and everything that each party had said. Right, but he didn't say something like, okay, yeah, there might be room to quibble whether this is first or second degree murder. I don't care what you call it. You can call it a ham sandwich, but I'm going to, this kind of conduct merits this kind of sentence. He didn't say anything like that, did he? He did not say that specifically. He did reference that it was serious conduct, and that was part of why he was sentencing the defendant, but he did not make any statement about the guidelines being, you know, not irrelevant, but that regardless of where you fall in the guidelines, the defendant gets the same sentence. Just one 
quick thing. Uh, this because it's been referenced multiple times that Judge Coons stated that he failed to um, reflect. I, I, that's really respectfully just being taken a bit out of context. Uh, Judge Coons' opinion states that the defendant that demonstrated his cool, calculated actions and intent. The defendant then discharged the woman and child from the car, followed the van, drove up to the side of the van, and deliberately discharged his gun at the driver's head. The entire encounter lasted long enough for the defendant to engage in calm reflection, to deliberate, and to step back from his premeditated attempt to murder the victim. Then it says he failed to do so. That's clearly referencing that he's failing to step back from his premeditated attempt to murder. Is not saying that he failed to deliberate. Because Judge Coons' opinion makes clear that the evidence shows that the defendant did think this through. He had the time to deliberate. You can deliberate in seconds. Seconds often happen in seconds. The defendant was clearly in a rage at first. He threatened the victims. He had the opportunity to put this all behind him. But instead, he drives and drops off the woman and child and then pursues his victims because he wants to hurt them. He chases them down, pulls up alongside them, and fires at the head of Lester Brown. And the evidence shows, we have the picture, the bullet is directly in line with Lester Brown's head. It's not too high, it's not too low, and it inches away in terms of how far it hit. And the evidence also shows, because the victim said on body cam at the time, that Lester Brown actually leans further back when he's driving. So the picture we have that has the uh, victim's head redacted, it's the bullet's directly in line with his head, but that bullet hole where it pierced the van is actually closer to where Lester Brown would have been sitting in the car. And that's why the victim say, wow, that metal plate had not been there in some substance. And they leave unsaid what's obvious, that if that metal plate were not there, the bullet would have struck Lester Brown in the head. That's why Lester Brown says he thought his shoulder was, he thought that his shoulder was grazed by the bullet. His shoulder hurt. Obviously, your shoulder is incredibly close to your head. This was someone who followed the victim and fired at his head after saying he was going to kill him and missed. His intentions are obvious. If there are no further questions, the government rests on the Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Gutman, you have two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. I think this case provides an opportunity for this court to take a close look at the meaning of premeditation because I think this argument confuses two concepts. Premeditation calls for there to be not just a period when you could deliberate, when you could tolerate the threat, but a period with an actual deliberation. As, as Mr. Toporowski just put it, the court's finding below was that there was an impulsive decision at the outset to commit murder and that it was, he did not step back from it. Well, and, I don't think that's the part that he read. I mean, he was quoting, uh, he was quoting Judge Coons. Judge Coons said that he failed to step back from the premeditated murder, right? Yes, Your Honor. So he basically said that there was premeditation. He had an opportunity to step back from it, and he didn't. But that begs the question, when was that premeditation? 
acting irrational, it was crazy, he was acting like he was drunk. There was no moment, and, and after, after the whole incident, the, the immediate description from the parties was, this was, this was all over road rage. There was never, and so if there was a prompt decision in the midst of that to, to uh, engage in, in an act of murder, it, it is, it, it cannot be said. What, what pre premeditation requires to elevate second degree to first degree murder, there must be some deliberation and what, why isn't the process of dropping people, other passengers off in the car, and then returning and following um, sufficient just in and of itself? What, what, that, what that shows is that he is engaged in actions that are deliberate in the sense that they are not automatic, they are not involuntary, they're not accidental. But, but the idea that that that, that in order to, and, and, and the thing that brought him off the, the woman is based on speculation that that was Mr. Pasley's idea rather than her idea, which I think the evidence supports that she was, was uh, certainly would want to get out of this situation, that, that she tried to defuse but couldn't defuse because he wouldn't calm down. He, he, he was so not, not, not able to be calmed down that he, he um, when she gave him a very sensible warning that because he's on supervised release, he's likely to go to jail if he keeps engaging this uh, altercation. He, he couldn't heed that advice he, he, because he was he was in an agitated, emotional state, and and the the idea that that you know he dropped her off when she was still yelling at him and the child was screaming, and then. He, took actions that required driving a car one way or the other, that's very different than he calmly reflected on my intention is to cause an individual's death. And the, the distinction, uh, what, what makes uh, murder in the first degree a, a higher level is, is the idea that it is based on uh, something more than a quickly formed impulsive decision in the midst of a rage. This entire episode, there was no moment when the rage subsided. That's true whether or not you look at uh, the evidence of that particular uh, aspects of Mr. Mr. Tess's brain injury and his medication. For anybody, just based on the objective evidence, there is no moment when he's calmed down. And, and I guess I'm not sure why you think that that's what the law requires for premeditation. So your view is that anybody who's agitated doesn't have the mental state for premeditation. Is that what you're saying? What's your best case for that? Because it seems to me a lot of people uh, know exactly what they're doing. They intend to do it. They uh, they, pre, they, they plan on it in the sense that they, it's not just sort of an impulse, but they're agitated. Uh, agitation, I think, uh, would, if that's, if it's, if agitation automatically makes it second degree murder, I guess I'd like to see a case for that. Well, well the, the 
Shaw case, which is, I guess, the leading case followed by the Second Circuit, I don't believe this court, other than endorsing that, has really spoken to this very clearly. I think maybe it's time it did. But the Shaw case specifically speaks about it requires a cruel mind. So that is incompatible, being in a rage. If you're in a rage, you can't have the cruel mind. And what makes it premeditated is the fact that there's both deliberation and that the person has an ability with a cruel mind to contemplate a murder, and that while he's in that state, he in fact deliberates over whether this is my plan. And we also cited cases that among the things that a court would look to are the relationship between the parties, which there wasn't any, and any other actions between them. One finding that the court below recited, which was one of these factors, is that the manner of the killing was so particular that it must have been the product of a calculated plan. And we would argue that the episode here is the antithesis of that. It absolutely, this was not a well-thought-out plan. It was in the middle of a busy street during rush hour in Brooklyn, and the shot was fired, first of all, not directly at the person's head, at the side of the van, which by the way, I don't want to lose my train of thought, but I think that is consistent with an intent to scare. You don't have to, but I don't want to lose it. Let me stick with the premeditation point. The evidence here is that this was as poorly, if this were planning, it's monstrously bad planning. He was in a place where he had to get caught, which he was within minutes because there was no way to get away quickly in a crowded area. There were obviously lots and lots of witnesses in a part of Brooklyn that has businesses and lots of people on the street at 4 in the afternoon. So nothing about the evidence supports what I believe the cases stand for, and they're cited in our brief, that we believe that if the court applies the meaning of premeditation that those cases discuss, there had to have been, first, a cool mind, and second, some actual deliberation during the period where there was a cool mind. Because there's neither, this court, the case should not be elevated to murder in the first degree. All right. Well, thank you. We will reserve decision. Thank you. That concludes the argument calendar. We have two other cases on submission, so I'll ask the clerk to adjourn court. Court is adjourned.